This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Camp of the Dog by Algernon Blackwood Read by Charles Blakemore The Camp of the Dog Part 5 Everything changed from the moment John Silence set foot on that island. It was like the effect produced by calling in some big doctor, some great arbiter of life and death, for consultation. The sense of gravity increased a hundredfold. Even inanimate objects took upon themselves a subtle alteration. For the setting of the adventure, this deserted bit of sea with its hundreds of uninhabited islands, somehow turned somber. An element that was mysterious and, in a sense, disheartening, crept unbidden into the severity of gray rock and dark pine forest, and took the sparkle from the sunshine and the sea. I, at least, was keenly aware of the change, for my whole being shifted as it were a degree higher, becoming keyed up and alert. Figures from the background of the stage moved forward a little into the light, nearer to the inevitable action. In a word, this man's arrival intensified the whole affair. And looking back down the years to the time when all this happened, it is clear to me that he had a pretty sharp idea of the meaning of it from the very beginning. How much he knew beforehand by his strange divining powers, it is impossible to say. But from the moment he came upon the scene and caught within himself the note of what was going on amongst us, he undoubtedly held the true solution of the puzzle, and had no need to ask questions. And this certitude it was that set him in such an atmosphere of power, and made us all look to him instinctively. For he took no tentative steps, made no false moves, and while the rest of us floundered he moved straight to the climax. He was indeed a true diviner of souls. I can now read into his behavior a good deal that puzzled me at the time, for though I had dimly guessed the solution, I had no idea how he would deal with it and the conversations I can reproduce almost verbatim, for according to my invariable hab habit, I took full notes of all he said. To Mrs. Maloney, foolish and dazed, to Joan, alarmed yet plucky, and to the clergyman, moved by his daughter's distress below his usual shallow emotions, he gave the best possible treatment in the best possible way yet all so easily and simply as to make it appear naturally spontaneous for he dominated the boatswain's mate, taking the measure of her ignorance with infinite patience. He keyed up Joan, stirring her courage and interest to the highest point for her own safety. And the Reverend Timothy he soothed and comforted, while obtaining his implicit obedience by taking him into his confidence and leading him gradually to a comprehension of the issue that was bound to follow. And Sangree... Here his wisdom was, was most wisely calculated. He neglected outwardly, because inwardly he was the object of his unceasing and most concentrated attention. Under the guise of, of apparent indifference, his mind kept the Canadian under constant observation. There was a restless feeling in the camp that evening, and none of us lingered round the fire after supper as usual. Sangree and I busied ourselves with patching up the torn tent for our guest, and with finding heavy stones to hold the ropes, for Dr. Silence insisted on having it pitched on the highest point of the island ridge, just where it was most rocky, 
and there was no earth for pegs. The place, moreover, was midway between the men's and women's tents, and, of course, commanded the most comprehensive view of the camp. So that if your dog comes, he said simply, I may be able to catch him as he passes across. The wind had gone down with the sun, and an unusual warmth lay over the island that made sleep heavy. And in the morning we assembled at a late breakfast, rubbing our eyes and yawning. The cool north wind had given way to the warm southern air that sometimes came up with haze and moisture across the Baltic, bringing with it the relaxing sensations that produced enervation and listlessness. And this may have been the reason why at first I failed to notice that anything unusual was about, and why I was less alert than normally. For it was not till after breakfast that the silence of our little party struck me, and I discovered that Joan had not yet put in an appearance. And then, in a flash, the last heaviness of sleep vanished, and I saw that Maloney was white and troubled, and his wife could not hold a plate without trembling. A desire to ask questions was stopped in me by a swift glance from Dr. Silence, and I suddenly understood in some vague way that they were waiting till Sangree should have gone. How this idea came to me I cannot determine, but the soundness of the intuition was soon proved, for the moment he moved off to his tent, Maloney looked up at me and began to speak in a low voice. "'You slept through it all,' he half-whispered. "'Through what?' I asked, suddenly thrilled with the knowledge that something dreadful had happened. "'We didn't wake you for fear of getting the whole camp up,' he went on, meaning, by the camp, I supposed, Sangree. It was just before dawn when the screams woke me. The dog again, I asked, with a curious sinking of the heart. Got right into the tent, he went on, speaking passionately but very low, and woke my wife by scrambling all over her. Then she realized that Joan was struggling beside her, and by God the beast had torn her arm, scratched all down the arm she was, and bleeding. Joan injured, I gasped, merely scratched. This time, put in John Silence, speaking for the first time, suffering more from shock and fright than actual wounds. "'Isn't it a mercy the doctor was here?' said Mrs. Maloney, looking as if she would never know calmness again. "'I think we should have both been killed.' "'It has been a most merciful escape,' Maloney said his pulpit voice struggling with his emotion. "'But, of course, we cannot risk another. We must strike camp and get away at once.' "'Only poor Mr. Sangree must not know what has happened. He is so attached to Joan, and would be so terribly upset,' added the boatswain's mate distractedly, looking all about in her terror. "'It is perhaps advisable that Mr. Sangree should not know what has occurred,' Dr. Silence said with quiet authority. "'But I think for the safety of all concerned it would be better not to leave the island just now.' He spoke with great decision, and Maloney looked up and followed his words closely. "'If you will agree to stay here a few days longer, I have no doubt we can put an end to the attentions of your strange visitor, and incidentally have the opportunity of observing a most singular and interesting phenomenon.' "'What?' gasped Mrs. Maloney. "'A phenomenon? You mean that you know what it is?' "'I am quite certain I know what it is,' he replied very low, for we had heard the footsteps of Sangree approaching." though I am not so certain yet as to the best means of dealing with it. But in any case, it is not wise to leave precipitately. "'Oh, Timothy! Does he think it's a devil?' 
cried the boatswain's mate in a voice that even the Canadian must have heard. In my opinion, continued John Silence, looking across at me and the clergyman, it is a case of modern lycanthropy, with other complications that may. He left the sentence unfinished, for Mrs. Maloney got up with a jump and fled to her tent, fearful she might hear a worse thing. And at that moment, Sangree turned the corner of the stockade and came into view. There are footmarks all round the mouth of my tent, he said with excitement. The animal has been here again in the night. Dr. Silence, you really must come and see them for yourself. They're as plain on the moss as tracks in snow. But later in the day, while Sangree went off in the canoe to fish the pools near the larger islands, and Joan lay still, bandaged and resting in her tent, Dr. Silence called me and the tutor and proposed a walk. To the granite slabs of the far end. Mrs. Maloney sat on a stump near her daughter and busied herself energetically with alternate nursing and painting. We'll leave you in charge, the doctor said with a smile that was meant to be encouraging. And when you want us for lunch or anything, the megaphone will always bring us back in time. For though the very air was charged with strange emotions, everyone talked quietly and naturally as with a definite desire to counteract unnecessary excitement. "'I'll keep watch,' said the plucky boatswain's mate, and meanwhile I find comfort in my work. She was busy with the sketch she had begun on the day after our arrival. "'For even a tree,' she added proudly, pointing to her little easel, "'is a symbol of the divine, and the thought makes me feel safer.' We glanced for a moment at a daub which was more like the symptom of a disease than a symbol of the divine." and then took the path round the lagoon. At the far end we made a little fire and lay round it in the shadow of a big boulder. Maloney stopped his humming suddenly and turned to his companion. "'And what do you make of it all?' he asked abruptly. "'In the first place,' replied John Silence, making himself comfortable against the rock, "'it is of human origin, this animal. It is undoubtedly lycanthropy.' His words had the effect precisely of a bombshell. Maloney listened as though he had been struck. "'You puzzle me utterly,' he said, sitting up closer and staring at him. "'Perhaps,' replied the other, "'but if you'll listen to me for a few moments, you may be less puzzled at the end. Or more. Depends on how much you know. Let me go further and say that you have underestimated or miscalculated the effect of this primitive wildlife upon all of you.' "'In what way?' asked the clergyman, bristling a trifle. "'It is strong medicine for any town-dweller, "'and for some of you it has been too strong. "'One of you has gone wild.' "'He uttered these last words with great emphasis. "'Gone savage,' he added, looking from one to the other. "'Neither of us found anything to reply. "'To say that the brute has awakened in a man "'is not a mere metaphor always,' he went on presently. "'Of course not. "'But, in the sense I mean, "'may have a very literal and terrible significance,' "'pursued Dr. Silence. "'Ancient instincts that no one dreamed of, "'least of all their possessor, "'may leap forth. "'Atavism can hardly explain a roaming animal "'with teeth and claws and sanguinary instincts,' "'interrupted Maloney with impatience. "'The term is of your own choice.' continued the doctor equably, not mine. 
and it is a good example of a word that indicates a result while it conceals the process. But the explanation of this beast that haunts your island and attacks your daughter is of far deeper significance than mere atavistic tendencies, or throwing back to animal origin, which I suppose is the thought in your mind. You spoke just now of lycanthropy, said Maloney, looking bewildered and anxious to keep to plain facts, evidently. I think I have come across the word, but really, really, it can have no actual significance to-day, can it? These superstitions of medieval times can hardly— He looked round at me with his jolly red face, and the expression of astonishment and dismay on it would have made me shout with laughter at any other time. Laughter, however, was never farther from my mind than at this moment, when I listened to Dr. Silence, as he carefully suggested to the clergyman the very explanation that had gradually been forcing itself upon my own mind. However medieval ideas may have exaggerated the idea is not of much importance to us now, he said quietly, when we are face to face with a modern example of what, I take it, has always been a profound fact. For the moment let us leave the name of any one in particular out of the matter, and consider certain possibilities. We all agreed with that, at any rate. There was no need to speak of Sangree or of anyone else until we knew a little more. The fundamental fact in this most curious case, he went on, is that of the double of a man. You mean the astral body? I've heard of that, of course, broke in Maloney with a snort of triumph. No doubt, said the other, smiling, no doubt you have. That this double or fluidic body of a man, as I was saying, has the power under certain conditions of projecting itself and becoming visible to others. Certain training will accomplish this, and certain drugs likewise. Illnesses, too, that ravage the body may produce temporarily the result that death produces permanently, and let loose this counterpart of a human being and render it visible to the sight of others. Every one, of course, knows this more or less today. But it is not so generally known, and probably believed by none who have not witnessed it, that this fluidic body can, under certain conditions, assume other forms than human, and that such other forms may be determined by the dominating thought and wish of the owner. For this double, or astral body, as you call it, is really the seat of the passions, emotions, and desires in the physical economy. It is the passion body, and in projecting itself it can often assume a form that gives expression to the overmastering desire that molds it for it is composed of such tenuous matter that it tends itself readily to the moulding by thought and wish. "'I follow you perfectly,' said Maloney, looking as if he would much rather be chopping firewood elsewhere and singing. "'And there are some persons so constituted,' the doctor went on with increasing seriousness, "'that the fluid body in them is but loosely associated with the physical, persons of poor health as a rule,' yet often of strong desires and passions, and in these persons it is easy for the double to dissociate itself during deep sleep from their system, and driven forth by some consuming desire to assume an animal form and seek the fulfillment of that desire. There, in broad daylight, I saw Maloney deliberately creep closer to the fire and heap the wood on. We gathered into the heat and to each other, and listened to Dr. Silence's voice as it mingled with the swish and whir of the wind about us, and the falling of the little waves. For instance, 
To take a concrete example, he resumed, suppose some young man with the delicate constitution I have spoken of forms an overpowering attachment to a young woman, yet perceives that it is not welcomed, and is man enough to repress its outward manifestations. In such a case, supposing his double be easily projected, the very repression of his love in the daytime would add to the intense force of his desire when released in deep sleep from the control of his will, and his fluidic body might issue forth in monstrous or animal shape and become actually visible to others. And if his devotion were dog-like in its fidelity, yet concealing the fires of a fierce passion beneath, it might well assume the form of a creature that seemed to be half dog, half wolf. A werewolf, you mean? cried Maloney, pale to the lips as he listened. John Silence held up a restraining hand. A werewolf, he said, is a true psychical fact of profound significance. However absurdly it may have been exaggerated by the imaginations of a superstitious peasantry, in the days of unenlightenment, for a werewolf is nothing but the savage and possibly sanguinary instincts of a passionate man scouring the world in his fluidic body, his passion body, his body of desire, as in the case at hand he may not know it. It is not necessarily deliberate, then," Maloney put in quickly with relief. It is hardly ever deliberate. It is the desires released in sleep from the control of the will finding a vent. In all savage races, it has been recognized and dreaded this phenomenon styled werewolf. But today it is rare, and it is becoming rarer still. For the world grows tame and civilized, emotions have become refined, desires lukewarm. And few men have savagery enough left in them to generate impulses of such intense force, and certainly not to project them in animal form. By gad! Exclaimed the clergyman breathlessly, and with increasing excitement. Then I feel I must tell you, what has been given to me in confidence, that Sangri has in him an admixture of savage blood, of Red Indian ancestry. Let us stick to our supposition of a man as described. The doctor stopped him calmly, and let us imagine that he has in him this admixture of savage blood, and further that he is wholly unaware of his dreadful physical and psychical infirmity, and that he suddenly finds himself leading the primitive life together with the object of his desires, with the result that the strain of the untamed wild man in his blood, Red Indian, for instance. From Maloney, Red Indian, perfectly agreed. The doctor, the result, I say, that this savage strain in him is awakened and leaps into passionate life. What then? He looked hard at Timothy Maloney, and the clergyman looked hard at him. The wild life such as you lead here on this island, for instance, might quickly awaken his savage instincts, his buried instincts, and with profoundly disquieting results. You mean his subtle body, as you call it, might issue forth automatically in deep sleep and seek the object of its desire? I said, coming to Maloney's aid, who was finding it more and more difficult to get words. Precisely. Yet the desire of the man remaining utterly unmalefic, pure and wholesome in every sense. Ah! I heard the clergyman gasp. The lover's desire for union run wild, run savage. Tearing its way out in primitive, untamed fashion, I mean, 
continued the doctor, striving to make himself clear to a mind bounded by conventional thought and knowledge. For the desire to possess, remember, may easily become importunate, and embodied in this animal form of the subtle body, which acts as its vehicle, may go forth to tear in pieces all it obstructs, to reach to the very heart of the loved object, and to seize it. Au fond, it is nothing more than the aspiration for union, as I said, the splendid and perfectly clean desire to absorb utterly into itself. He paused a moment and looked into Maloney's eyes. To bathe in the very heart's blood of the one desired, he added with grave emphasis. The fire spurted and crackled, and made me start. But Maloney found relief in a genuine shudder and I saw him turn his head and look about him from the sea to the trees. The wind dropped just at that moment, and the doctor's words rang sharply through the stillness. "'Then it might even kill,' stammered the clergyman presently in a hushed voice, and with a little forced laugh by way of protest that sounded quite ghastly. "'In the last resort it might kill,' repeated Dr. Silence." Then, after another pause, during which he was clearly debating how much or how little it was wise to give to his audience, he continued, And if the double does not succeed in getting back to its physical body, that physical body might wake an imbecile, an idiot, or perhaps never wake at all. Maloney sat up and found his tongue. You mean that if this fluid animal thing, or whatever it is, should be prevented from getting back, the man might never wake again? He asked with a shaking voice. He might be dead, replied the other calmly. The tremor of a positive sensation shivered in the air about us. Then isn't that the best way to cure the fool? The brute thundered the cl clergyman, half rising to his feet. "'Certainly it would be an easy and undiscoverable form of murder,' was the stern reply, spoken as calmly as though it were a remark about the weather. Maloney collapsed visibly, and I gathered the wood over the fire and coaxed up a blaze. "'The greater part of the man's life, of his vital forces, goes out with this double,' Dr. Silence resumed after a moment's consideration." and a considerable portion of the actual material of his physical body. So the physical body that remains behind is depleted not only of force but of matter. You would see it small, shrunken, dropped together, just like the body of a materializing medium at a séance. Moreover, any mark or injury inflicted on this double will be found exactly reproduced by the phenomenon of repercussion upon the shrunken physical body lying in its trance. An injury inflicted upon the one, you say, would be reproduced also on the other? repeated Maloney, his excitement growing again. Undoubtedly, replied the other quietly, for there exists all the time a continuous connection between the physical body and the double, a connection of matter though of exceedingly attenuated, possibly of etheric, matter. The wound travels, so to speak, from one to the other, and if this connection were broken, the result would be death. Death, repeated Maloney to himself. Death. 
he looked anxiously at our faces, his thoughts evidently beginning to clear. And this solidity, he asked presently after a general pause, this tearing of tents and flesh, this howling, and the marks of paws, you mean that the double has sufficient material drawn from the depleted body to produce physical results? Certainly. The doctor took him up. Although to explain at this moment such problems as the passage of matter through matter would be as difficult as to explain how the thought of a mother can actually break the bones of the child unborn. Dr. Silence pointed out to see, and Maloney, looking wildly about him, turned with a violent start. I saw a canoe, with Sangri in the stern seat, slowly coming into view around the farther point. His hat was off, and his tanned face for the first time appeared to me, to us all, I think, as though it were the face of someone else. He looked like a wild man. Then he stood up in the canoe to make a cast with the rod, and he looked for all the world like an Indian. I recalled the expression of his face, as I had seen it once or twice, notably on that occasion of the evening prayer, and an involuntary shudder ran down my spine. At that very instant he turned and saw us where he lay, and his face broke into a smile, so that his teeth showed white in the sun. He looked in his element, and exceedingly attractive. He called out something about his fish, and soon after passed out of sight into the lagoon. For a time none of us said a word. And the cure, ventured Maloney at length, is not to quench this savage force, replied Dr. Silence, but to steer it better, and to provide other outlets. This is the solution of all these problems of accumulated force, for this force is the raw material of usefulness, and should be increased and cherished, not by separating it from the body by death, but by raising it to higher channels. The best and quickest cure of all, he went on, speaking very gently, and with a hand upon the clergyman's arm, is to lead it towards its object, provided that object is not unalterably hostile, to let it find rest where... He stopped abruptly, and the eyes of the two men met in a single glance of comprehension. Joan! Maloney exclaimed under his breath. Joan! replied John Silence. We all went to bed early. The day had been unusually warm, and after sunset a curious hush descended upon the island. Nothing was audible but that faint, ghostly singing which is inseparable from a pine wood even in the stillest day. A low, searching sound, as though the wind had hair and trailed it over the, over the, over the world. With the sudden cooling of the atmosphere, a sea-fog began to form. It appeared in isolated patches over the water, and then these patches slid together and a white wall advanced upon us. Not a breath of air stirred. The firs stood like flat metal outlines. The sea became as oil. The whole scene lay as though held motionless by some huge weight in the air and the flames from our fire, the largest we had ever made, rose upwards straight as a church steeple. As I followed the rest of our party tentwards, having kicked the embers of the fire into safety, the advance guard of the fog was 
creeping slowly among the trees like white arms feeling their way. Mingled with the smoke was the odor of moss and soil and bark, and the peculiar flavor of the Baltic, half salt, half brackish, like the smell of an estuary at low water. It is difficult to say why it seemed to me that this deep stillness masked an intense activity. Perhaps in every mood lies the suggestion of its opposite, so that I became aware of the contrast of furious energy, for it was like moving through the deep pause before a thunderstorm, and I trod gently, lest by breaking a twig or moving a stone I might set the whole scene into some sort of tumultuous movement. Actually, no doubt, it was nothing more than a result of overstrung nerves. There was no more question of undressing and going to bed than there was of undressing and going to bathe. Some sense in me was alert and expectant. I sat in my tent and waited, and at the end of half an hour or so my waiting was justified, for the canvas suddenly shivered, and someone tripped over the ropes that held it to the earth. John Silence came in. The effect of his quiet entry was singular and prophetic. It was just as though the energy lying behind all this stillness had pressed forward to the edge of action. This, no doubt, was merely the quickening of my own mind, and had no other justification. For the presence of John Silence always suggested the near possibility of vigorous action, and as a matter of fact he came in with nothing more than a nod and a significant gesture. He sat down in a corner of my ground sheet, and I pushed the blanket over so that he could cover his legs. He drew the flap of the tent after him and settled down, but hardly had he done so when the canvas shook a second time and in blundered Maloney. "'Sitting in the dark,' he said self-consciously, pushing his head inside and hanging up his lantern on the ridge-pole nail. "'I just looked in for a smoke, I suppose.' He glanced round, caught the eye of Dr. Silence, and stopped. He put his pipe back into his pocket and began to hum softly, that under-breath humming of a nondescript melody I knew so well, and had come to hate. Dr. Silence leaned forward, opened the lantern, and blew the light out. "'Speak low,' he said, "'and don't strike matches. Listen for sounds and movement about the camp.' and be ready to follow me at a moment's notice. There was light enough to distinguish our faces easily, and I saw Maloney glance again hurriedly at both of us. "'Is the camp asleep?' the doctor asked presently, whispering. "'Sangri is,' replied the clergyman, in a voice equally low. "'I can't answer for the women. I think they're sitting up. "'That's for the best.' And then he added, "'I wish the fog would thin a bit, and let the moon through.' Later, we may want it. It is lifting now, I think, Maloney whispered back. It's over the tops of the trees already. I cannot say what it was in this commonplace exchange of remarks that thrilled. Probably M Maloney's swift acquiescence in the doctor's mood had something to do with it, for his quick obedience certainly impressed me a good deal. But even without that slight evidence, it was clear that each recognized the gravity of the occasion, and understood that sleep was impossible, and sentry duty was the order of the night. "'Report to me,' repeated John Silence once again, "'the least sound, and do nothing precipitately.' He shifted across to the mouth of the tent and raised the flap, 
fastening it against the pole so that he could see out. Maloney stopped humming and began to force the breath through his teeth with a kind of faint hissing, treating us to a medley of church hymns and popular songs of the day. Then the tent trembled, as though someone had touched it. "'That's the wind rising,' whispered the clergyman, and pulled the flap open as far as it would go. A waft of cold, damp air entered, and made us shiver, and with it came a sound of the sea as the first wave washed its way softly along the shores. "'It's got round to the north,' he added, and following his voice came a long-drawn whisper that rose from the whole island as the trees sent forth a sighing response. "'The fog'll move a bit now. I can make out a lane across the sea already.' "'Hush!' said Dr. Silence, for Maloney's voice had risen above a whisper, and we settled down again to another long period of watching and waiting, broken only by the occasional rubbing of shoulders against the canvas as we shifted our positions, and the increasing noise of waves on the outer coastline of the island. And over all whirred the murmur of wind sweeping the tops of the trees like a great harp, and the faint tapping on the tent as drops fell from the branches with a sharp pinging sound. We had sat for something over an hour in this way, and Maloney and I were finding it increasingly hard to keep awake, when suddenly Dr. Silence rose to his feet and peered out. The next minute he was gone. Relieved of the dominating presence, the clergyman thrust his face close into mine. "'I don't much care for this waiting game,' he whispered but silence wouldn't hear of my sitting up with the others. He said it would prevent anything happening if I did. He knows, I answered shortly. No doubt in the world about that, he whispered back. It's this double business, as he calls it, or else it's obsession as the Bible describes it. But it's bad, whichever it is. And I've got my Winchester outside ready cocked, and I brought this too. He shoved a pocket Bible under my nose. At one time in his life it had been his inseparable companion. One's useless and the other's dangerous, I replied under my breath, conscious of a keen desire to laugh and leaving him to choose. Safety lies in following our leader. I'm not thinking of myself, he interrupted sharply. Only if anything happens to Joan tonight, I'm going to shoot first and pray afterwards. Maloney put the book back into his hip pocket and peered out of the doorway. "'What is he up to now, in the devil's name, I wonder?' he added. "'Going round Sangri's tent and making gestures. "'How weird he looks, disappearing in and out of the fog.' "'Just trust him and wait,' I said quickly, "'for the doctor was already on his way back. "'Remember, he has the knowledge and knows what he's about. "'I have been with him through worse cases than this.' "'Maloney moved back as Dr. Silence darkened the doorway and stooped to enter.' "'His sleep is very deep,' he whispered, seating himself by the door again. "'He's in a cataleptic condition, and the double may be released any minute now. "'But I've taken steps to imprison it in the tent, and it can't get out till I permit it. "'Be on the watch for signs of movement.' "'Then he looked hard at Maloney. "'But no violence or shooting, remember, Mr. Maloney, unless you want a murder on your hands. "'Anything done to the double?' acts by repercussion upon the physical body. You had better take out the cartridges at once. His voice was stern. 
The clergyman went out, and I heard him emptying the magazine of his rifle. When he returned, he sat nearer the door than before, and from that moment until we left the tent, he never once took his eyes from the figure of Dr. Silence, silhouetted there, against sky and canvas. And meanwhile, the wind came steadily over the sea, and opened the mist into lanes and clearings, driving it about like a living thing. It must have been well after midnight, when a low booming sound drew my attention. But at first the sense of hearing was so strained that it was impossible exactly to locate it, and I imagined it was the thunder of big guns far out at sea, carried to us by the rising wind. Then Maloney, catching hold of my arm and leaning forward, somehow brought the true relation, and I realized the next second that it was only a few feet away. Sangree's tent! he exclaimed in a loud and startled whisper. I craned my head round the corner, but at first the effect of the fog was so confusing that every patch of white driving about before the wind looked like a moving tent, and it was some seconds before I discovered the one patch that held steady. Then I saw it was shaking all over, and the sides, flapping as much as the tightness of the ropes allowed, were the cause of the booming sound we heard. Something alive was tearing frantically about inside, banging against the stretched canvas in a way that made me think of a great moth dashing against the walls and ceiling of a room. The tent bulged and rocked. "'It's trying to get out by Jupiter!' muttered the clergyman, rising to his feet, and turning to the side where the unloaded rifle lay. I sprang up, too, hardly knowing what purpose was in my mind, but anxious to be prepared for anything. John's silence, however, was before us both, and his figure slipped past and blocked the doorway of the tent. And there was some quality in his voice next minute when he began to speak that brought our minds instantly to a state of calm obedience. First, the women's tent,' he said low, looking sharply at Maloney. "'And if I need your help, I'll call.' The clergyman needed no second bidding. He dived past me and was out in a moment. He was laboring evidently under intense excitement. I watched him picking his way silently over the slippery ground, giving the moving tent a wide berth, and presently disappearing among the floating shapes of fog." Dr. Silence turned to me. "'You heard those footsteps about half an hour ago?' he asked significantly. I heard nothing. They were extraordinarily soft, almost the soundless tread of a wild animal. But now follow me closely,' he added, "'for we must waste no time if I am to save this poor man from his affliction and lead his werewolf double to its rest. And unless I am much mistaken,' He peered at me through the darkness, whispering with the utmost distinctness, Joan and Sangri are absolutely made for one another. And I think she knows it, too, just as well as he does. My head swam a little as I listened, but at the same time something cleared in my brain, and I saw that he was right. And yet it was all so weird and incredible, so remote from the commonplace facts of life as commonplace people know them. And more than once it flashed upon me that the whole scene, people, words, tents, and all the rest of it, were delusions, 
created by the intense excitement of my own mind somehow, and that suddenly the sea fog would clear off and the world would become normal again. The cold air from the sea stung our cheeks sharply as we left the close atmosphere of the little crowded tent. The sighing of the trees, the waves breaking below on the rocks, and the lines and patches of mist driving about us seemed to create the momentary illusion that the whole island had broken loose and was floating out to sea like a mighty raft. The doctor moved just ahead of me, quickly and silently. He was making straight for the Canadian's tent, where the sides still boomed and shook as the creature of sinister life raced and tore about impatiently within. A little distance from the door he paused and held up a hand to stop me. We were perhaps a dozen feet away. "'Before I release it, you shall see for yourself,' he said, "'that the reality of the werewolf is beyond all question. "'The matter of which it is composed is, of course, exceedingly attenuated, "'but you are partially clairvoyant, "'and even if it is not dense enough for normal sight, you will see something.' "'He added a little more I could not catch.' The fact was that the curiously strong vibrating atmosphere surrounding his person somewhat confused my senses. It was the result, of course, of his intense concentration of mind and forces, and pervaded the entire camp and all the persons in it. And as I watched the canvas shake and heard it boom and flap, I heartily welcomed it, for it was also protective. At the back of Sangri's tent stood a thin group of pine trees, but in front and at the sides the ground was comparatively clear. The flap was wide open, and any ordinary animal would have been out and away without the least trouble. Dr. Silence led me up to within a few feet, evidently careful not to advance beyond a certain limit, and then stooped down and signaled to me to do the same and looking over his shoulder I saw the interior lit faintly by the spectral light reflected from the fog, and the dim blot upon the balsam boughs and blankets signifying sangri, while over him and round him and up and down him flew the dark mass of something on four legs, with pointed muzzle and sharp ears plainly visible against the tent sides, and the occasional gleam of fiery eyes and white fangs. I held my breath, and kept utterly still, inwardly and outwardly, for fear, I suppose, that the creature would become conscious of my presence. But the distress I felt went far deeper than the mere sense of personal safety, or the fact of watching something so incredibly active and real. I became keenly aware of the dreadful psychic calamity it involved. The realization that Sangri lay confined in that narrow space with this species of monstrous projection of himself, that he was wrapped there in the cataleptic sleep, all unconscious that this thing was masquerading with his own life and energies, added a distressing touch of horror to the scene. In all the cases of John Silence, and they were many and often terrible, no other psychic affliction has ever, before or since, impressed me so convincingly with the pathetic impermanence of the human personality, with its fluid nature, and with the alarming possibilities of its transformations. Come, he whispered, after we had watched for some minutes the frantic efforts to escape from the circle of thought and will that held it prisoner. 
Come a little farther away while I release it. We moved back a dozen yards or so. It was like a scene in some impossible play, or in some ghastly and oppressive nightmare, from which I should presently awake to find the blankets all heaped up upon my chest. By some method undoubtedly mental, but which, in my confusion and excitement, I failed to understand, the doctor accomplished his purpose, and the next minute I heard him say sharply under his breath, It's out! Now watch! At this very moment a sudden gust from the sea blew aside the mist, so that a lane opened to the sky, and the moon, ghastly and unnatural as the effect of stage limelight, dropped down in a momentary gleam upon the door of Sangri's tent, and I perceived that something had moved forward from the interior darkness, and stood clearly defined upon the threshold. And at the same moment the tent ceased its shuddering, and held still. There in the doorway stood an animal, with neck and muzzle thrust forward, its head poking into the night, its whole body poised in that attitude of intense rigidity that precedes the spring into freedom, the running leap of attack. It seemed to be about the size of a calf, leaner than a mastiff, yet more squat than a wolf, and I can swear that I saw the fur ridged sharply upon its back. Then its upper lip slowly lifted, and I saw the whiteness of its teeth. Surely no human being ever stared so hard as I did in those next few minutes. Yet the harder I stared, the clearer appeared the amazing and monstrous apparition. For after all it was sangri, and yet it was not sangri. It was the head and face of an animal, and yet it was the face of sangri, the face of a wild dog, a wolf, and yet his face. The eyes were sharper, narrower, more fiery, yet they were his eyes. His eyes run wild. The teeth were longer, whiter, more pointed, yet they were his teeth, his teeth grown cruel. The expression was flaming, terrible, exultant, yet it was his expression, carried to the border of savagery, his expression as I had already surprised it more than once, only dominant now, fully released from human constraint, with the mad yearning of a hungry and importunate soul. It was the soul of Sangri, the long-suppressed, deeply loving Sangri, expressed in its single and intense desire, pure, utterly, and utterly wonderful. Yet at the same time came the feeling that it was all an illusion. I suddenly remembered the extraordinary changes the human face can undergo in circular insanity, when it changes from melancholia to elation, and I recalled the effect of hashish, which shows the human countenance in the form of the bird or animal to which in character it most approximates and for a moment I attributed this mingling of Sangri's face with a wolf to some kind of similar delusion of the senses. I was mad, deluded, dreaming. The excitement of the day and the dim light of stars and bewildering mist combined to trick me. I had been amazingly imposed upon by some false wizardry of the senses. It was all absurd and fantastic. It would pass. And then... Sounding across this sea of mental confusion like a bell through the fog, came the voice of John Silence, bringing me back to a consciousness of the reality of it all. Sangri! In his double! 
and when I looked again more calmly, I plainly saw that it was indeed the face of the Canadian, but his face turned animal, yet mingled with the brute expression of a curiously pathetic look like the soul seen sometimes in the yearning eyes of a dog, the face of an animal shot with vivid streaks of the human. The doctor called to him softly under his breath, Sangri! Sangri, you poor afflicted creature, do you know me? Can you understand what it is you're doing in your body of desire? For the first time since its appearance the creature moved. Its ears twitched, and it shifted the weight of its body onto the hind legs. Then, lifting its head and muzzle to the sky, it opened its long jaws and gave vent to a dismal and prolonged howling. But... When I heard that howling rise to heaven, the breath caught and strangled in my throat, and it seemed that my heart missed a beat. For though the sound was entirely animal, it was at the same time entirely human. And more than that, it was the cry I had so often heard in the western states of America, where the Indians still fight and hunt and struggle. It was the cry of the redskin. "'The Indian blood!' whispered John Silence when I caught his arm for support, the ancestral cry. And that poignant, beseeching cry, that broken human voice mingling with the savage howl of the brute beast, pierced straight to my very heart, and touched there something that no music, no voice, passionate or tender, of man, woman, or child, has ever stirred before or since for one second into life. It echoed away among the fog and the trees and lost itself somewhere out over the hidden sea. And some part of myself, something that was far more than the mere act of intense listening, went out with it, and for several minutes I lost consciousness of my surroundings and felt utterly absorbed in the pain of another stricken fellow-creature. Again the voice of John Silence recalled me to myself. "'Hark!' he said aloud. "'Hark!' His tone galvanized me afresh. We stood listening, side by side. Far across the island, faintly sounding through the trees and brushwood, came a similar answering cry. Shrill, yet wonderfully musical, shaking the heart with a singular wild sweetness that defied description, we heard it rise and fall upon the night air. "'It's across the lagoon!' Dr. Silence cried but this time in full tones that paid no tribute to caution. It's Joan! She's answering him! Again the wonderful cry rose and fell, and that same instant the animal lowered its head, and muzzled to earth, set off on a swift, easy canter that took it off into the mist and out of our sight like a thing of wind and vision. The doctor made a quick dash to the door of Sangri's tent, and following close at his heels, I peered in and caught a momentary glimpse of the small, shrunken body lying upon the branches, but half covered by the blankets. The cage from which most of the life, and not a little of the actual corporeal substance, had escaped into that other form of life and energy, the body of passion and desire. By another of those swift, incalculable processes, which at this stage of my apprenticeship I failed often to grasp, Dr. Silence reclosed the circle about the tent and body. Now it cannot return till I permit it, he said, and the next second was off at full speed into the woods with myself close behind him. 
I had already had some experience of my companion's ability to run swiftly through a dense wood, and I now had the further proof of his power almost to see in the dark. For once we left the open space about the tenths, the trees seemed to absorb all the remaining vestiges of light, and I understood that special sensibility that is said to develop in the blind, the sense of obstacles. And twice as we ran we heard the sound of that dismal howling drawing nearer and nearer to the answering faint cry from the point of the island whither we were going. Then suddenly the trees fell away and we emerged hot and breathless upon the rocky point where the granite slabs ran bare into the sea. It was like passing into the clearness of open day and there, sharply defined against sea and sky, stood the figure of a human being. It was Joan. I at once saw that there was something about her appearance that was singular and unusual, but it was only when we had moved quite close that I recognized what caused it. For while the lips wore a smile that lit the whole face with a happiness I had never seen there before, the eyes themselves were fixed in a steady, sightless stare, as though they were lifeless and made of glass. I made an impulsive forward movement, but Dr. Silence instantly dragged me back. No! he cried. Don't wake her! What do you mean? I replied aloud, struggling in his grasp. She's asleep. It's somnambulistic. The shock might injure her permanently. I turned and peered closely into his face. He was absolutely calm. I began to understand a little more, catching, I suppose, something of his strong thinking. Walking in her sleep, you mean? He nodded. She's on her way to meet him. From the very beginning he must have drawn her, irresistibly. But the torn tent and the wounded flesh? When she did not sleep deep enough to enter the somnambulistic trance, he missed her. He went instinctively, and in all innocence, to seek her out, with the result, of course, that she woke and was terrified. Then in their heart of hearts they love? I asked finally. John Silence smiled his inscrutable smile. Profoundly, he answered, and as simply as only primitive souls can love. If only they both come to realize it in their normal waking states, his double will cease these nocturnal excursions. He will be cured and at rest. The words had hardly left his lips when there was a sound of rustling branches on our left, and the very next instant the dense brushwood parted where it was darkest, and out rushed the swift form of an animal at full gallop. The noise of feet was scarcely audible, but in that utter stillness I heard the heavy panting breath and caught the swish of the low brushes against its sides. It went straight towards Joan, and as it went the girl lifted her head and turned to meet it and the same instant a canoe that had been creeping silently and unobserved round the inner shore of the lagoon emerged from the shadows and defined itself upon the water with a figure at the middle thwart. It was Maloney. It was only afterwards I realized that we were invisible to him as we stood against the dark background of trees. The figures of Joan and the animal he saw plainly, but not Dr. Silence and myself standing just beyond them. He stood up in the canoe and pointed with his right arm. I saw something gleam in his hand. Stand aside, Joan girl, you'll get hit, he shouted. 
his voice ringing horribly through the deep stillness, and the same instant a pistol-shot cracked out with a burst of flame and smoke, and the figure of the animal, with one tremendous leap into the air, fell back in the shadows and disappeared like a shape of night and fog. Instantly, then, Joan opened her eyes, looked in a dazed fashion about her, and, pressing both hands against her heart, fell with a sharp cry into my arms that were just in time to catch her. And an answering cry sounded across the lagoon, thin, wailing, piteous. It came from Sangree's tent. "'Fool!' cried Dr. Silence. "'You've wounded him!' and before we could move or realize quite what it meant, he was in the canoe and halfway across the lagoon. Some kind of similar abuse came in a torrent from my lips, too, though I cannot remember the actual words, as I cursed the man for his disobedience and tried to make the girl comfortable on the ground. But the clergyman was more practical. He was spreading his coat over her and dashing water on her face. "'It's not Joan I've killed at any rate,' I heard him mutter as she turned and opened her eyes and smiled faintly up in his face. "'I swear the bullet went straight.' Joan stared at him. She was still dazed and bewildered, and still imagined herself with the companion of her trance. The strange lucidity of the somnambulist still hung over her brain and mind." though outwardly she appeared troubled and confused. "'Where has he gone to? He disappeared so suddenly, crying that he was hurt,' she asked, looking at her father, as though she did not recognize him. "'And if they have done anything to him, they have done it to me, too, for he is more to me than—' Her words grew vaguer and vaguer as she returned slowly to her normal waking state, and now she stopped altogether, as though suddenly aware that she had been surprised into telling secrets." But all the way back, as we carried her carefully through the trees, the girl smiled and murmured Sangri's name, and asked if he was injured, until it finally became clear to me that the wild soul of the one had called to the wild soul of the other, and in the secret depths of their beings the call had been heard and understood. John Silence was right. In the abyss of her heart, too deep at first for recognition, the girl loved him, and had loved him from the very beginning. Once her normal waking consciousness recognized the fact, they would leap together like twin flames, and his affliction would be at an end. His intense desire would be satisfied. He would be cured. And in Sangri's tent, Dr. Silence and I sat up for the remainder of the night, this wonderful and haunted night that had shown us such strange glimpses of a new heaven and a new hell, for the Canadian tossed upon his balsam boughs with high fever in his blood and upon each cheek a dark and curious contusion showed, throbbing with severe pain, though the skin was not broken, and there was no outward and visible sign of blood. "'Maloney shot straight, you see,' whispered Dr. Silence to me after the clergyman had gone to his tent, and had put Joan to sleep beside her mother, who, by the way, had never once awakened. "'The bullet must have passed clean through the face, for both cheeks are stained.' He'll wear these marks all his life, smaller, but always there. They are the most curious scars in the world, these scars transferred by repercussion from an injured double. They'll remain visible until just before his death, and then, with the withdrawal of the subtle body, they will disappear finally. His words mingled in my dazed mind with the sighs of the troubled sleeper and the crying of the wind about the tent. Nothing seemed to paralyze my powers of realization so much as these twin stains of mysterious significance upon the face before me. 
It was odd, too, how speedily and easily the camp resigned itself again to sleep and quietness, as though a stage curtain had suddenly dropped down upon the action and concealed it. And nothing contributed so vividly to the feeling that I had been a spectator of some kind of visionary drama as the dramatic nature of the change in the girl's attitude. Yet, as a matter of fact, the change had not been so sudden and revolutionary as appeared. Underneath, in those remoter regions of consciousness where the emotions unknown to their owners do secretly mature, and owe thence their abrupt revelation to some abrupt psychological climax, there can be no doubt that Joan's love for the Canadian had been growing steadily and irresistibly all the time. It now rushed to the surface, so that she recognized it. That was all. And it has always seemed to me that the presence of John's silence, so potent, so quietly efficacious, produced an effect, if one may say so, of a psychic forcing-house, and hastened incalculably the bringing together of these two wild lovers. In that sudden awakening had occurred the very psychological climax required to reveal the passionate emotion accumulated below. The deeper knowledge had leapt across and transferred itself to her ordinary consciousness, and in that shock the collision of the personalities had shaken them to the depths and shown her the truth beyond all possibility of doubt. He's sleeping quietly now, the doctor said, interrupting my reflections. If you'll watch alone for a bit, I'll go to Maloney's tent and help him arrange his thoughts. He smiled in anticipation of that arrangement. He'll never quite understand how a wound on the double can transfer itself to the physical body. But at least I can persuade him that the less he talks and explains tomorrow, the sooner the forces will run their natural course now to peace and quietness. He went away softly, and with the removal of his presence, Sangree, sleeping heavily, turned over and groaned with the pain of his broken head. And it was in the still hour, just before the dawn, when all the islands were hushed, the wind and sea still dreaming, and the stars visible through clearing mists, that a figure crept silently over the ridge and reached the door of the tent where I dozed beside the sufferer, before I was aware of its presence. The flap was cautiously lifted a few inches, and in looked Joan. That same instant Sangree woke and sat up on his bed of branches. He recognized her before I could say a word, and uttered a low cry. It was pain and joy mingled, and this time all human. The girl, too, was no longer walking in her sleep, but fully aware of what she was doing. I was only just able to prevent him from springing from his blankets. "'Joan! Joan!' he cried, and in a flash she answered him. "'I'm here. I'm with you always now.' And it pushed past me into the tent, and flung herself upon his breast. I knew you would come to me in the end, I heard him whisper. It was all too big for me to understand at first, she murmured, and for a long time I was frightened. But not now, he cried louder. You don't feel afraid now of... of anything that's in me. I fear nothing, she cried. Nothing! Nothing! I let her outside again. She looked steadily into my face with eyes shining, and her whole being transformed. In some intuitive way, surviving probably from the somnambulism, she knew or guessed as much as I knew. "'You must talk to-morrow with John Silence,' I said gently, leading her towards her own tent. He understands everything. I left her at the door, 
and as I went back softly to take up my place of sentry again with the Canadian, I saw the first streaks of dawn lighting up the far rim of the sea behind the distant islands. And as though to emphasize the eternal closeness of comedy to tragedy, two small details rose out of the scene and impressed me so vividly that I remember them to this very day. For in the tent where I had just left Joan, all a-quiver with her new happiness, there rose plainly to my ears the grotesque sounds of the boatswain's mate, heavily snoring, oblivious of all things in heaven or hell. And from Maloney's tent, so still was the night, where I looked across and saw the lantern's glow, there came to me, through the trees, the monotonous rising and falling of a human voice, that was beyond question the sound of a man praying to his God. The End of The Camp of the Dog by Algernon Blackwood